be in Acts, as I said, uh, in Acts 1. So we started last week. We began a new series in the book of Acts that I'm tentatively calling Now What? Because it kind of answers the question, now what? What do we do? How do we, how do we move forward now that Jesus is gone? How does the church come together? How do we figure all these things out? Well, the changes that are made, the fact that uh, now God has opened up the kingdom of God, the family of God to all people. What does that mean? What does that look like? All of these things kind of get answered in the book of Acts. And so uh, this is going to be a kind of a long series. And so even in my own prep, and I'm going to kind of point this out as we go along, uh, I've kind of bracketed off different sections as to kind of be many, many groupings of um, passages to kind of help keep us focused. And so right now we're in the midst of uh, really a preparation, a series of, of preparations that have to happen before this new era of ministry can begin. Um, they're getting things ready for the new church era, and it's about to take place. But before that can happen, before the apostles can go live into this calling as the sent ones, there are a few things that need to get taken care of. And there are two specific ones that are going to get handled in the next uh, two weeks. We're going to look at one of them today. We're going to look at the other one next week. The one today has to do with decisions. We all make decisions. We make decisions every day, almost every moment. Big ones, little ones, we make decisions regularly. When I look back at my life, one of the biggest decisions that I ever made had to do with college. Um, when I was in high school, I knew where I was going to go to school. I applied to one school. It was uh, Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa. It's about yay big by yay big. Uh, it's one of those one-stoplight kind of cities, uh, towns. And uh, I knew I was going to go there. I got the ACT. I did the ACT. I got the exact number I needed to get into school. Didn't take the ACT again. Uh, like, I did the bare, like, what are the bare minimums to get into this school? I'm in. Done. Didn't think about it. That's where I wanted to be. Uh, and so... I went to school there. I, I did my first semester, my freshman year at that school, and it did not go well uh, from a relational standpoint, let's say. Um, I was coming off of a time in my life where it's probably the, the most spiritual growth that had happened in my life, and then ran into college, and I moved away from my church, my community, my family, everybody, uh, and just did my own thing. I had no support. I had no relationships and just kind of lived and existed uh, and made a lot of really poor decisions. And so um, I realized in the midst of making those decisions that that was not the place that I needed to be. It was not going to make me the person I wanted to be. I was having fun, uh, but the wrong kind of fun. And so I decided I needed to leave. I needed to go somewhere else. But then that asked the question, where am I going to go? What school am I going to go to? And that was a process I had to walk through um, throughout the next couple of months as I tried to figure out what my next steps were. We all make decisions. And what we're going to look at this morning is the apostles have to make a big decision. They need to be made whole again. In the process of looking at this big decision they have to make, we are going to be shown some examples of this is what it looks like to make an informed, well-thought-out decision, as well as be reminded of God's sovereignty. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to pray. And then we will uh, we'll jump in. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Um, this opportunity to open your word, to read it, to, to let it sink into our heads and hearts. To help us to hear from you as you reveal yourself to us. 
God, we come here every Sunday, and every one of us has a different kind of week today, where things could be good, things could be rough, and everywhere in between. And we come here, though unified, to hear from you, to engage with you, to experience your presence and your instruction and your guidance and to hear from what you have to say so that we can not just be hearers of the word but doers and respond to the words you have for us. So God, help us. um, Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to comprehend and hearts to believe and hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us here this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we will go back and talk about it. So uh, Acts 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So Jesus is gone. He has ascended into heaven. He will not return until that day when he comes to institute the full reigning ruling kingdom of God here. We are still waiting. This right here, verse 12, when they return to Jerusalem, when they start making decisions, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the church age. The age we continue in today, the beginning of something new, the end of Jesus's earthly ministry and the beginning of an entire new era that continues on, as I said, even to today. And so the followers of Jesus returned to Jerusalem. It says it's a Sabbath day journey. Now in the Ten Commandments, it tells us of the many Ten Commandments, there's the one that says, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, rest, take a break. And so as the Jewish people were trying to live into that and say, okay, 
we got to take a rest on the Sabbath. How do we do that? Pharisees and scribes and rabbis over time came up with a system. They basically came up with rules to say, okay, we're going to decide this is work and this is rest. And once you cross the line from rest to work, now you're in trouble. But we need to have set parameters on what is rest and what is work. And though they did that for how far you could travel. They did that for how much you could work in the field, how much you could, everything. They gave parameters. And so to, without going too deep into it, basically the rule was at that time you were allowed to walk 2,000 cubits during the Sabbath. That's about three quarters of a mile. So Olivet is about three quarters of a mile from Jerusalem. And it says in verse 13 that they went to the upper room. And we have no way to determine if this is actually what I think it is, but I think it. When I see, it says they went to the upper room. I see that it says they went to the upper room, not a upper room. And so when I read it, I see that as the upper room of the Last Supper. The upper room where the disciples hid after Jesus was arrested and killed. The upper room where they were hiding and it was locked and nobody could get in or out, and yet Jesus got in. I, again, I have no proof of way to like, verify that. I think that's where they're at. And so they're in the upper room, and we get a list of who's there. We have the 11 disciples all there, except for Judas, obviously. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then you also have some of the women who followed Jesus, including Mary, his mother, as well as his brothers. And that is pretty interesting, because this shows that a change has happened in the siblings of Jesus. Right? When you read the Gospels, especially early on in the Gospels, early on in Mark, Jesus' siblings think he's lost his mind. They thought, he, they thought he was off his rocker, that he was doing these, he was saying these things, he was doing these miracles, and they wanted to pull him away from the crowds because they thought he had lost it. But now, here, they find themselves gathered and numbered among those who would consider Jesus not only a man, but the Messiah. Not only the Messiah, but the Son of God, who died for their sins and rose again, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. This is a huge change for the siblings of Jesus. Verse 15 tells us, that all told, there's about 120 people in this upper room. So I don't know about you, but I tend to think when I read the Gospels and I see Jesus with the 12, I usually think like those three years was Jesus and the 12 doing their thing, and then they would just kind of go from town to town, and other people would show up occasionally, but it was mostly just Jesus and his 12. That's not how it actually was. You had Jesus and his 12, yes, but then you had others who followed Jesus from town to town. You had people who followed along with him and were there for the miracles and the teachings and the events that happened. Remember, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts are both written. They're both, all the details that we have are coming from eyewitnesses. They're coming from people that Luke went and talked to years later. And he didn't just speak with the disciples. Luke is a, is a physician. He is a man of science. So if he just talked to the disciples, he's going to get a very biased answer on how things went. But he had a large group of people he could talk to, a large group of people who were there for these different events of Jesus' life and ministry that could share their insight on their experience. And so we have now this large group of people, about 120 people in this upper room. We're a few weeks removed from the resurrection. Jesus is gone, their leader, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, the guy who was calling the shots, the one who was setting the daily itinerary, he's nowhere to be found. There's a leadership void that has happened here. You have 120 people, nobody's really in charge. 
got to think the murmurs, the conversations. Okay, now what? Is he, is he really gone this time? Because we know over these few weeks when Jesus, after Jesus rose from the dead, we know that he appears to large crowds and then he would disappear and then he'd reappear and disappear. And so many of them have got to be thinking, is he really, really gone? I know the guys in the robes said he was gone, but is he coming back? What do we do now? Where do we go? Rome is still in charge. We're all here in Jerusalem. Not many of us don't live here, but we're here for the Passover. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? What's next? We see in verse 15, Peter stands up, and he begins to speak. I have a deep affinity for Peter. I love Peter. Because Peter is our biblical everyman. He's just a guy. He is impulsive. He is passionate. He is devoted. He is flawed. He has this really good, awesome moments, and then he turns around and he says things and he puts his foot right into his mouth. If you read through the Gospels, Peter gets this reputation as the de facto speaker of the group. Sometimes, though, that's only because of his impulsive nature. Like in Mark 9, during the Transfiguration, they're up on the mountain. Jesus is, has shed his earthly restrictions, and he's fully formed. It's Jesus, and it's Moses, and it's Elijah, and they're in this awesome mountaintop moment. And it says in Mark 9 that during the Transfiguration, Peter speaks out, and he says, It's good that you were all here together. Lord, let us go down. We'll make tents for you and for Elijah and Moses. This will be great. And then it says right after that, he said these things out of fear, not knowing what else to say. Peter had this moment. He was so overwhelmed with feelings. He's like, I don't know what to say, so I'm just going to start talking. Does anybody, anybody can relate to that? That's Peter. He would just kind of talk when he got nervous. But we do see that every time, including here in the book of Acts, that when the disciples, when the apostles are listed out, Peter is always listed first. He is known as the leader and we will see as we study Acts that he continues to grow and develop and lean into this role as leader of the disciples. And it starts really right here as he brings some order and rest and clarity to the situation. And he does so by going to scripture. And so he addresses the elephant in the room of what happened with Judas. The fact that Judas was numbered among the twelve. And yet still he betrayed Jesus. He led the soldiers to Jesus to find him in the garden so that Jesus could be arrested. Peter tells the group exactly what Jesus had told them previously, that the Son of Man was going to be betrayed, had to be betrayed, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Peter is trying to bring comfort and remind them this was all set up ahead of time by God. If God is really in control of all things at all times, then Judas's betrayal was not a shock. It was not a surprise. It was not... Out of left field, God knew about it, God allowed it, and it was used for the glory of God. The same is true for you and for me and for everything we experience in our lives. Every situation, good and bad, none of it shocks God. None of it surprises him, and all of it is to be used for his glory. Now Luke in verse 18 and 19 sets in this little aside in parentheses so that everyone reading this is on the same page as far as how things ended for Judas. But some might read those verses and say there's a little bit of a problem here. So I'll, I'll read it for you. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akodama, that is the field of blood. Now, if you've read your Gospels, some of you might think, I thought Judas hung himself at the end. This says he split open. 
we could sit and debate that and talk about that. Either he hangs himself and he falls, or maybe, you know, the fact that he hangs himself and he's in the middle of the desert and the sun just did what it does to bodies and decomposes. We don't need to get into the details. None of us have had brunch yet. But what's more interesting than however it is that Judas ends up dying is this in this aside in verse 19 is the fact that to this day, Luke says this field is called Akodama, the field of blood. And to this day, right now, you could buy a ticket and fly there and go to Jerusalem. And in the southwest of Jerusalem, there is a valley still referred to and still named Akodama. And I point that out as an example to all of us that this isn't some made-up myth. This isn't just some created story. It's real. The people in it were real. They really lived. They really died. They really experienced these things. And time and time again, the Bible proves itself to be real and true and accurate and at times historical. The other thing I want us to consider before we move on from Judas, because we don't really talk about him much after this, is the very real lesson that we should all learn from him. He was chosen by Jesus. At one point, Jesus looked him in the eye. The Gospels say Jesus knew he was going to betray him, and he still looked him in the eye and said, Judas, you come with me. You follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Just a couple of hours before Jesus was going to be arrested and betrayed by Judas, Jesus is on his hands and, hands and knees washing Judas' feet. This man walked with Jesus sat and talked and ate and lived in close proximity to God himself. He spent years of his life shoulder to shoulder with God, and he still ends up a non-believer. What do you actually believe about Jesus? What do you actually believe about who he is? Because just because you're in church or you hang out with Christians or you own two or three Bibles, it doesn't make you a Christian if you don't actually have a relationship and you actually haven't made a decision on what you believe about the man who called himself God. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Be well acquainted with God and his word. Because if someone in that close of proximity to Jesus could miss the mark, what does that say for you and me? you got questions, you got doubts, you got concerns, let's talk about it. Let's go to the Word together. Let's do the work together because I I will gladly sit and and walk through those questions, concerns, doubts that you might be thinking or feeling because I, I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Knowing what I believe, that was a, it was a big part of why I picked leaving school, leaving college, because I wanted to go to a Christian school. I wanted to be in a place that would teach me Bible because at that point, I was done running. I kind of had a Jonah moment. That's a different story for a different day. Kind of had some Jonah years where God said, hey, you should go into ministry. And I said, nope, uh, and kind of ran from that. And I got to the point where I was done running. And so I knew that I was called into ministry, but I felt gravely underprepared. And I knew I needed more Bible training. And so I knew I wanted to leave the school I was at in Iowa, and I wanted to be in a Christian school. And so I began to whittle down my choices to And I I wanted to stay relatively local, relatively close, kind of Midwest area. I I didn't want to do another cornfield school. I did that. That was fun. I was done with that. I wanted, you know, more than one movie theater in the town I was going to school in. 
And so as I did that and I started to kind of look into these different schools and think through where I was going to go, it began, began to be clearer and clearer to me that God said, I want you to stay local. I want you to stay close to Chicago. A lot of that had to do with family and, and relationships I had here. And what I realized over time was that I, I could pick a Bible college and, and it was going to be okay. I had friends who were doing the same thing I did, who had went to a school, felt called to go into, into ministry, and so they went to a Bible school. And I, and I saw different friends do this in different schools and said, man, and they're flourishing. They're doing well. And so I could, I could pick one of these schools, and it would be okay, right? Because sometimes God gives us multiple good options, and ultimately what we got to do is just take a step and make a decision. And so Peter is starting to realize a decision needs to get made about Judas, about what to do with the role that Judas left open more specifically. And so he quotes two different psalms in verse For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So first he quotes Psalm 69:25 in which David is praying that his enemy's camp become desolate, may no one dwell in it. And then he quotes Psalm 109 or 109:8. It's a psalm in which David is condemning those who betrayed him and basically praying to God about those who have betrayed and abandoned him. Both of these are penned, as I said, by David, which give them a prophetic voice in nature because the Messiah who was to come would be of the line of David. Jesus is the son of David sent by God to go to war with Satan, to be the greater warrior king than David ever was, to be the one who would bring unity and rule and reign over God's people forever in the way that David shadowed in his best years as king Jesus would fulfill, complete, will, will fulfill completely and perfectly when he comes back to reign and to rule. And it's the second of these two psalms that leads Peter to make a decision about what should come next. He says, let another take his office. It was important for there to be 12 apostles, 12 of the sent out ones. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the community that God had originally built. And what God was about to do in opening up something brand new by welcoming in outsiders into the family of God, he did so never forgetting or ignoring where, what he had started, how he had started things with the Israelites. And he always wanted to be able to point back and say, these are my people, the Israelites. We started, yes, with the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, but now we're going to open things up. And so there were the 12 apostles. And so now they're left with a big decision. How does a new apostle get chosen? And we get some insights on how this was done and the ways that we can approach decisions in our own lives. We see in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then you can skip down to verse 24, and again, they're praying a devotion to prayer. Unified and devoted themselves to prayer. And after, again, after they have the two guys they nominated, they pray some more. Regular, consistent, devoted time of prayer is essential in decision-making. We'll see it continually in the book of Acts, and you can go to the Gospels and see it even in the life of Jesus as he would regularly remove himself from the crowds and even remove himself from his disciples to go away and pray. Even the night before he chooses the disciples, knowing full well who he's going to pick, he spends the night praying. 
You can go back further even into the Old Testament and look at the prophets, the judges, and the leaders, excuse me, and the leaders that found themselves regularly spending time talking with God, conversing with God. <coughs> excuse me. I don't think I have to convince anyone here that Christians should pray. Right? Scripture's pretty clear on that. It should be a mark of us as individuals and us corporately as a community. But why? Why do we have to pray? And the answer has to go deeper than the Bible says so. Because if it's just a thing we have to do, if it's just another law we have to follow, there will be no joy, no life, no substance to our prayer lives. Dallas Willard says that prayer is conversing and communicating with God. John Piper said prayer is objectively real. A real God, real communication, real work, real answers but also comes in a million shapes and forms. Prayer happens in seconds, short moments in the cracks of our day, and it can happen for hours at a time, even throughout a whole night. Prayer is conscious, personal communication with the God of the universe. The thing these quotes have in common is that it's about engaging with God. And that reality, us having the ability to engage, communicate with God, is something to be marveled at. The God of all creation, who spoke creation into existence, the one who keeps things moving, the one who holds all things together in his hands, we get to engage with him, and he wants to hear from you. We have the privilege and blessing to spend time with our creator and sustainer, our savior and king, and he enjoys it. Prayer is a discipline. It is a learnable discipline. It is something you can practice and grow better at. But it's something to grow better at it, you got to do it. It's good to read books on prayer, but ultimately you got to actually do it for yourself. I would encourage you, find somebody who is a, has a strong prayer life. Ask them how they developed it, how they learned And My guess is that person's going to pray for you on the spot to help you grow in it is something to learn, which should be a freeing reality for all of us. Because it means that if you feel like you struggle in being able to focus in prayer, you struggle with having a consistent prayer life, you don't know what to do or what to say, it is possible to grow from that. These disciples, these apostles were devoted to prayer. It was part of all of their decision-making, their daily lives. The other thing we see here in verse 14 is that they were gathered with one accord. They had a community, a united community. The disciples and followers of Jesus were of one accord, one mind, one purpose. They were unified. They were a community of believers uni uni unified together. Do you have people in your life, specifically believers in your life, who speak truth into your life, who help you discern, who can speak wisdom into you when you are wrestling with a situation, with a decision. I say it all the time, and I'm going to say it a lot more in this series. We're made for community. Christianity is a team sport. It is a group effort. We are meant to lean on each other and hold each other up and strengthen each other. And one of the ways we can do that is by sharing with one another when we are wrestling with decisions. When we are wrestling with something and giving each other space to speak into our lives and the grace to speak into those decisions. This here in Acts, we see a community forming and growing together ultimately with the ultimate goal of how do we glorify God with our very next decision? 
How often is that your driving question when you make a decision? How do I best glorify God with my next step, with my next decision? They're devoted in prayer. They're united in community. And then we see in verse 20, they're guided by Scripture. We've already talked about how Peter was driven by Scripture here. He couldn't Google verses about desertion and then be like, oh, well, look at these psalms. They clearly cross-reference with our situation. Peter knew the word. He knew it well enough to dwell on it often enough that in this moment it comes to his forefront. Hey, there are these psalms, and I think God's speaking to us through them. Charles Spurgeon said, you should visit many good books, but you should live in the Bible. It is through personal intake of the Bible that we come to know God better, to understand his will for our lives and experience God's transforming presence in our own. See, often we think about who who wrote the Bible, and we think about Moses, David, Luke. But in actuality, the one who wrote the Bible, the original author, is God himself. That's what we mean when we say it's the word of God, right? 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of it is breathed out by God. It all comes from him. This book is God revealing himself to us, and all of it is useful for teaching us how to live the abundant life that God has called us to live. It is helpful for reproof and correction, teaching us right from wrong, showing us where there is error, where there is sin in our lives. Instead of trying to use culture or personal preference or, ex- or emotion or experience, trying to find out what is right and wrong, we have for us God's written word and guide to us. It's used for training in righteousness in growing and maturing in our relationship with him and being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The only way this book could be profitable for teaching, reproof and correction and training, living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the only way it could be all of those things is by it being from the creator of all existence. If it was just a book written by some people, it wouldn't have that life-giving power. And on the flip side, the only way for us to be able to take advantage of all that this book can and will do in our lives is means we've got to actually open it and read it. Now, it doesn't speak to every specific situation you may encounter, every specific decision you have to make, but the more that you take in of Scripture, the more you know of the character and will of God, the more clearly decisions and situations will become in light of what you already know. Does the Bible have specific verses about what we should do in regards to social media usage or what to do about legalized marijuana, or should I send my kids to public or private school, or voting red and blue, or should I stay at my current job, should I leave my... No. But the knowledge and wisdom and character of God revealed in Scripture, the peace and clarity in prayer, the discernment and wisdom of being in community with other believers and letting them speak into our lives, can help show us what Scripture does have to say and apply it to our lives in a healthy, real way in a God-honoring, God-glorifying, humble way. I'm not talking about randomly opening the Bible or Googling verses and taking them out of context and saying, this is my life verse, and finding ways for the Bible to say, 
I can do whatever I want to do. We're talking about finding ways to, uh, we're talking about making decisions that honor God and glorify God and keep us humble. And so we do all of these things in context with one another because we're the community. The next thing we see in this, and I don't have a, a clever way, it's, it's like a combination of common sense and logic and wisdom is what we see basically Peter lay out here in verse 21. He lays out this idea of what the next apostle should, what their experience should be like. As a community, guided by scripture and under the direction of much prayer, they use some common sense and logic to determine the credentials. They say basically, okay, the Bible doesn't give us a roadmap on how to do this. There wasn't a specific decree from Jesus about what to do with Judas's space in the apostleship. So they pray, they read scripture, and they believe those passages and psalms pointing them to need to fill the role that Judas left. And so they say, okay. Well, the 11 of us that are still left have been around since John baptized Jesus and we were still here through the resurrection. We saw the resurrected Jesus. So whoever steps in should have that same experience, should have that same window. Because as we go out to be witnesses of the resurrection, they are all preaching and and speaking into the same experiences. This is also going to keep whoever gets slotted in here from feeling like a secondary citizen, right? Like they weren't a real apostle. No, they had the same experiences. Yes, they weren't part of the original 12, but they had the same experiences as the other 11. And they were seeking one accord, one unity among them. They didn't want something that was going to divide whoever they inserted next. And so from this group of 120, they whittle it down to these two guys. Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabbas, a.k.a. Justice. Maybe if he only had one name, he would have won. And then you got Matthias. We know nothing of either one of these guys. Neither one of them is mentioned again. But apparently everybody in the room was cool with it, coming down to these two. But now what? How do we choose? So to help them decide, we see, as I said already in verse 24, they prayed again, because you can't pray too much over a big decision. And importantly, they prayed before making the decision. They are asking for Jesus' help and direction. We, at least I, tend to make a decision and then ask God to bless that decision. But they prayed beforehand. And look at the prayer in verse 24 and 25. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They prayed to Jesus, who knows the heart of all. God knows you. He knows all of you. He knows the good and the bad. He still loves you. He loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you and to call you into his family. And even after you were saved by grace through faith in Christ and you sin, God still knows it. God still sees it. God still loves you. God still forgives you. And we see them pray, show which one of these two you have chosen. It was Jesus who chose the original 12, and it is Jesus who is going to choose the replacement for Judas. And so without Jesus physically there, they decide on an old system. So when I was making my decision for colleges, I I whittled it down to two. I had Judson College up in Elgin, and I had Trinity International University up in Deerfield. Uh, And I could not decide between the two. Judson had a little bit older campus, was kind of rustic, kind of nice. I had friends there. I had relationships already there. Trinity was a little bit newer, uh, had some other 
connections to seminary, further teaching that I want, or further learning that I wanted to do. Um, but I couldn't decide between the two. The, the tuition was roughly the same. Distance was kind of negligible. I, it, was, it, was, it was a coin flip. And I couldn't decide. And so eventually my mom says, like, summer's fading away here. And my mom says, okay, you need to make a decision because we got to write a check to somebody. She said, okay, I'm going to give you until this night or this day. At that point, I'm making the decision for you. I don't know if you guys know this about me. I tend to procrastinate, and I did. I talked with everybody I possibly could. You might also know that about me. When I'm making decisions, when I'm wrestling through things, I like input. I like hearing from people. I like talking things out. And I talked to everybody I possibly could, people at church, people in my family, Christian, non-Christian. I tried to get a lot of different views, and I was stuck. It was a dead heat. Pros and cons list didn't help nothing. I get to the night before my mom's deadline. And I can't make a decision. I went out with some of my friends. I come back. It's like 2 in the morning. And I have been praying, and I still can't come up with anything. I walk into the laundry room of my parents' house, and I turn the light on, and on the ground is a dime. So I said, all right, why not? I said, God, hedge Trinity, tails tails Judson. Flip the coin. It lands heads. Trinity, I sign the paperwork, I go to bed. I felt really good about that decision. Because like I said before, I think I had two decisions before me that either one would have been okay. I don't think if I ended up at Judson, I don't think God would have smited me or like done something horrible. I think it would have been okay either way. But I felt good just having made the decision and being okay with it. Was it the wisest way to take it down to a coin flip? I don't know, I was like 19. And to be fair, right here, we see in verse 25 and 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They cast lots to pick the next apostle. Lots is basically, it's a, it's a version of throwing dice, really. There's different ways to do it. You would take, probably in this instance, what they would do is they took two different stones, um, put them into a jar. They probably, they either had, each one of them had a name on it or one of them had a special marking and they shook the jar up with the stones. And you could either do it where whatever uh, stone came out first, that's who you pick, or you just put one special stone in or you have one mark special, you shake them up and you pour them out and whichever stone lands closer to the guy, that's who you pick. Either way, it was basically random chance. It seems kind of wild, doesn't it? Right? I mean, like, if we went today with our elder nominations, and, like, as opposed to voting as a community, we were just like, all right, Daniel Rico, let's roll some dice, see if he's going to be an elder, that seems a little nuts. Peter, I mean, really, man, you couldn't come up with a better solution here? But this is actually a very sanctified way of making decisions in the Old Testament. Aaron does it in Leviticus 16. Um, in Jonah 1, the sailors do it. There are guard duties determined in 1 Chronicles 26. It was actually a very common way to make decisions. And again, I think being guided by Scripture, what I think happened here is that Peter has in mind Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it is every decision, but it's every decision is from the who? From the Lord. 
every decision is from the Lord. They believe that, yes, we can cast lots. And it might seem like random chance, but if we believe God is who he says he is, and he's in control of all things at all times, he's in control of how this lot falls. And they asked and prayed and said, Jesus, show us who you have already chosen. And so the cast lots, it falls on Matthias, and he is chosen to be part of the 12. And now the stage is set for one of the most amazing and impactful events in the book of Acts. Something that makes the rest of the book happen, and something that we still benefit from today, it's the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see next week. And so next week, between now and next week, I want you to read chapter 2 of the book of Acts, because we're going to cover the whole chapter next week. It was a fine way for them to make the decision. And it's an example, though, I think this whole section is an example of something I said last week, that we have prescriptive and we have descriptive. Right? The steps they go through in this process are good, and the things that we can learn from and grow in, right? Prayer, scripture, community, logic. These are great and important and even vital to helping us make important decisions in our lives. That's prescriptive. Those things we should cling on to. But we really don't need to cast lots anymore. I think that's more descriptive. That's something they, they did at that time. And we have a pretty good indication that this is a descriptive thing because this is the last time that casting lots is ever mentioned in the Bible. And we have different places going on in the book of Acts where decisions are made where they don't cast lots. Specifically later on when deacons are selected and in different churches when elders are selected, they have a similar situation as here, but they don't cast lots. Why? What's different between here in this upper room and later on when they're starting to pick leaders of churches? It's the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Because once he shows up, once he comes, things are different. The Holy Spirit does many things. He is our helper. He is our guide. He rebukes. He encourages. He leads. He empowers. He enlightens. He guides us. We as Christians have indwelling in us the Holy Spirit. We have access to him. He speaks to us at all times. We can trust his leading and guiding in our lives to give us wisdom on how to move in different situations. And what, he says he will, and what he says will always be backed up by Scripture. And we can find it affirmed by those in our community who also have the Holy Spirit, right? It's all interconnected. The Holy Spirit's not going to tell you to do something that contradicts Scripture. And so we pray, and we read Scripture, and we get into community with other believers, and we use some logic and common sense, and we listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, even with all of that, there are times we get overwhelmed and stuck by a decision we need to make, right? The thing that really sat with me as I, as I was prepping this week, as I read this chapter a few times, is, is the confidence and trust that they had in Jesus, even when he wasn't there. They were confident that God wanted this situation resolved and that he was going to resolve it. They took steps to pursue a decision, but ultimately their prayer, even in casting lots, they were confident of two things, and they prayed, God, just show us what you've already decided. And they were confident of two things. One, God is in control of all things at all times. We can cast the lots, but it is God who determines how they fall. We can make plans, but it is God who determines how they go. And two, God cares about the decisions we make. He cares about you which means he cares about the decisions you are wrestling with when you are struggling with figuring out where to live, 
where to work, who to date, who to marry, should you have kids, should you wait, what church to go to, how to raise your kids, how to spend your time, how to spend your money. These things that we wrestle through on a regular basis, the decisions we have to make, God cares about every one of them. Some decisions may seem small and trivial, and it's easy to think, why would God care about which car I pick to drive? It's so small in comparison to who he is. God has more important things to deal with. You are important to God. And so the things that are important to you are important to him. The things you are wrestling with, anguishing over, debating about, the things that you are struggling with are important to God. And he is there for you and has given you ways in which he can show himself, reveal himself, and speak into your life. Trust him by bringing to him, no matter what you may think, no matter how big or small you think of the situation, trust in bringing it to him that if you pursue him and pursue him in pursuing clarity, he's going to provide for you some wisdom and clarity because that's who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today this chance to gather and worship and be together. God, as we live, as we struggle, as we strive to live in this world and be lights in this world, it's hard and messy and we have a lot of decisions that seem not so black and white, not so clear. God, help us when we are making decisions, when we are living this life, help us to be guided by you, to trust your lead in our lives, to trust what your word has to say, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. You have provided for us time and time again, and you have provided for us ways in which we can hear from you, where you reveal yourself to us. And so, God, we ask that you would continue to do that. Give us Give us the humility to come and bring things to you. And give us the humility to listen and to respond when you tell us to go, even when we don't like the answer, even when we don't, might not agree with the answer, when it might not fit with our emotion or our experience or whatever this world wants to convince us of that is the ultimate truth. You are the ultimate truth. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in Delight in the fact that you delight in us, that you enjoy us, that we are important to you. Because we are your creation and because for those who have put their faith in Christ, we are your sons and daughters. God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their faith in Christ, that they would come to understand that there is a relationship with you to be had, that there is a an opportunity for them to rest in the power and majesty and sovereignty of who you are. That there's wisdom to be had, that there is grace and hope to be had. So God, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we have this with us, it doesn't mean that we are always making the right choice. That we are always going the right way. God, we still allow ourselves to make bad decisions, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, but we make bad decisions, God. It's in those times, help us to remember that you love us. 
And that even when we fall, even when we sin, even when we rebel against you, let us run to you as opposed to run away from you. Help us to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives and be bold enough to take steps when he tells us to. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.